Hey everybody, it's Avi. This episode of Eight or in a Better that you're about to hear was recorded some time ago. I just wasn't able to finish it all up and post it, but Saj and I had a conversation we wanted to preserve and get out, but we do note that there have been a number of developments since we recorded at the Monterey Capital Defense Seminar. So uh, just know that this was recorded back then, and we'll talk more about the subjects that are relevant in the future later. This is Eight or No Better. My name is Abhi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, hello. Hello, Abhi. Uh, we are recording from the Monterey Capital Case Conference. We are in our empty live giant studio audience yeah. <laughs> of zero. Yeah, it's just a huge room of zero people. We are going to uh, do a quick pod about the recent lifting of the stay of execution in the case of Dominique Gray by the United States Supreme Court. He was a person who had been denied access to an imam in the death chamber. And we're going to talk about how we process that as it happened and some reflections about that. And at the end of this episode, we're going to do our things. This is really sad. This is a really sad one. And uh, the day was kind of like a roller coaster. In the morning, you and I were talking about uh, this stay of execution that happened and how significant it was. And by about 10 p.m. that night, the stay had been lifted and Mr. Ray had been executed. Yeah. You know, this is a story that um, came to national prominence just in the past month because this issue was raised essentially in the last month uh, or so before Mr. Ray's scheduled execution date. The understanding is that Mr. Ray was convicted in the 90s for the rape and murder of a 15-year-old girl, was condemned to death row, went through his normal course of litigation and appeals ultimately an execution date was set in the interim from the time of his conviction to now mr ray had adopted the muslim faith while in incarcerated had become engaged with an imam uh, who was essentially guiding him uh, spiritually through his development as a muslim and was actively assisting him with guidance and affirmation and support as mr ray approached his last days here on earth. Mr. Ray learned that his imam would be able to witness the execution, but would not be able to be present within the uh, execution chamber, but that a Christian chaplain who was a Department of Corrections or parallel institution employee would um, be within the death chamber and could be available to Mr. Ray uh, if he so needed for spiritual guidance. But the problem was, is that this chaplain was Christian and Mr. Ray was Muslim. And so Mr. Ray was asking that this chaplain be excluded from the death chamber and that instead his imam be be within closer proximity to him for his last breaths. Uh, the state of Alabama uh, balked at that request and denied him that request and essentially said that he could have the chaplain in the chamber or nobody, and that the chaplain uh, was essentially trained uh, on protocols for, to be in the uh, to be in the death chamber. Part of he, like the execution team, right? He had been member. there for he had been an employee for several years, and that he uh, was uh, equipped to be there for those moments while the imam presumably was not. So, Mr. Ray, uh, through his counsel. Uh, filed litigation uh, demanding a stay of execution and essentially asking for reasonable accommodations for his unique religious needs. 
ultimately the I think at the uh, there's an appellate court that issued a stay and said that there was a viable establishment clause claim. We, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty here, but essentially saying that there was a claim that was viable that Mr. Ray was being discriminated against based on religion. And well, I'll, I'll just get into that briefly, which sure. is if you're going to treat people differently because of their religion, there have to be really, really good reasons for you to do that. Compelling state interest. And that, oh, well, he has an, an employee versus a non-employee doesn't satisfy that without some additional information. Right. And it didn't mean that they were ultimately going to get the imam in, but they said, let's put a timeout on this execution so we can sort out whether this religious discrimination, which it was, uh, was sufficiently justified. You know, if you're going to do religious discrimination, you have to have really, really, really good reasons for doing it. Right. right. And and so, and I, I'll backtrack a moment. The, it was the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit that uh, issued that stay and said that Mr. Ray has presented a viable claim under the Establishment Clause and said that the execution had to be stayed. The state of Alabama took that up to the United States Supreme Court asking for uh, that stay to be lifted so that their scheduled execution date could uh, date and time could go forward. And ultimately, the United States Supreme Court uh, at essentially in the last hours before Mr. Ray's scheduled execution time, issued a, I believe, a one-paragraph, if not two-paragraph, ruling uh, lifting the stay, essentially um, alluding to the fact that Mr. Ray had brought the claim too late and lifted the stay, leading to Mr. Ray's execution. I want to recommend, by the way, sorry to interrupt, I wanted to recommend people to just read the three pages total or it might be four pages total of the opinion and the dissent, the United States Supreme Court saying he knew when his execution date was set and he waited and waited and waited until bringing this claim. Right. And how disingenuous that argument is. Even aesthetically, it was so offensive that a death penalty case where a man is set to be executed only merits a paragraph that the United States Supreme Court majority, five justices, trivialized this this man in this case and is essentially uh, reduced it to a paragraph. Um, and, and that paragraph is the thin line between a man's death and his life and is the thin line between a man being afforded a very basic human dignity of having a spiritual advisor, being able to tell him what to say during his last breaths, what the protocol should be for him uh, based on his spiritual background. Just that that's what that's what his life appeared to be kind of reduced to by our greatest uh, court in the land. And let me make a different related point. A one-sentence denial, the stay is lifted, Right, is less content, but it's almost more humane. Or, you know, we're talking about absurd shit right now. Right. But to say the stay is lifted and then to put it on the person who's being executed on a baseless ground, to come up with a real, uh, uh, something that strains any reason you know about the timing and how he yeah. just he could have it, it, maybe this day would be appropriate had he filed the claim a couple months earlier right right that's that's there so there's there's all kinds of ways that this is messed up yeah. you know the the length but also the content of that length you know is just it it is offensive it's, yeah and it's gross you know, I'm thankful for Justice Kagan's uh, dissent, who was representing a four-person dissent, and she essentially outlined why this uh, stay should have been maintained. The state of Alabama had presented no, literally zero evidence as to why 
this religious discrimination uh, against Mr. Ray uh, was supported by a, a compelling state interest. Why, for example, there could not have been accommodations made to ensure that Mr. Ray's imam could have been sufficiently trained and equipped with appropriate protocols and information so that he would be essentially on par with the chaplain so that he could be physically present. And Justice Kagan also noted that the inference that Mr. Ray had brought the claim too late was also baseless because Mr. Ray only learned that he would be denied access to his imam and would be forced essentially to have the chaplain or nobody in the few weeks uh, before his execution date. He didn't have the ability or the information to challenge that because he didn't know it was going to be a protocol that was in place. Ultimately, it it just feels sickening. And it's uh, sickening and maddening and infuriating all at once. It's sickening to think that a man who we have chosen, and I use the word we very deliberately because yeah. I feel like so often even defense attorneys and people that are consider themselves progressive kind of wash their hands of the death penalty and egregious and inhumane uh, policies that our system continues to perpetrate. But we live in this country and it's our uh, electorate that continues to maintain the death penalty. It's our Supreme Court justices that are appointed by people that we elect that continue to maintain this capital punishment scheme. So we essentially denied a man who we chose to execute in a inhumane barbaric, uh, inequitable capital punishment scheme. So we're already establishing that we have this strand within us to, um, to be inhumane, but we took it a step further. We chose haste over humanity. Uh, we chose uh, wanting to expedite the killing of a human being over just taking a few moments to ensure that this human being's dignities and his basic demands, which could be reasonably accommodated, would be met. But instead, we were stuck on an execution date and time, and we were going to get there at every cost. Yeah. I'm not as personally interested in the hypocrisy point. As a hu- as a kind of human, as kind of human, <laughs> I sometimes uh, look for hypocrisy as one of the factors when I'm thinking critically about something. If I'm even wanting to launch a criticism, I think, well, also hypocrisy. I'm not so interested in that anymore not because hypocrisy is a good thing or a neutral thing or, or a bad thing, but just because if you're doing something wrong, like it's just wrong, right? So the fact that this court has said some discrimination against Muslim people is acceptable under presidential power or that person doesn't have to bake a cake based on a religious objection or people don't have to provide health care uh, if they object on religious grounds, like which religious objections are cognizable and which aren't. Like, there is a hypocrisy point that people have raised, I, I and I think it's legit. I just think it's wrong what happened, you yeah. know, yeah. It, irrespective exactly. of the hypocrisy. You know, that's that's my kind of the point that reaches me first. Another thing that I struggle with that I see from time to time is I, I don't believe in killing people, right? I don't, want, I don't want anybody to be killed, you know, by other people or by the state. And, you know, this whole killing people thing, it's it is it's it this just is what it is right i mean at a certain point you know we want to dress it up right. with like that we're respecting the dignity of the individual as we kill the person right or that we want to do it in a way that looks like they're drifting off into sleep right as as we kill them 
right? When the suffering we're so imposing on them isn't just that moment. It's the waiting in a place where at any moment the state's going to come take you and, and, and put you to death, right? It's the, the waiting for it. And so I, I think that this a whole ugly spectacle is something that we should evaluate, right? If you're thinking about this and you're saying, well, he wasn't given his spiritual religious advisor at the moment, and he was denied that only because he wasn't the right religion in the eyes of the state, right? That's a legit criticism. But maybe we should be asking, like, what are the circumstances under which we kill? Right. And I use we with you. I'm with you. Yeah. Right. You know, when or what are we doing to people? You know, would it have been a good thing? It, well, it would have been good because we wouldn't have discriminated against them in the final moment. But we should be really thinking, you know, and I don't mean to kind of preach to the choir or whatever, but this is what it is, right? It's kind of exposed, you know, the right. Supreme Court kind of exposed, yeah. five justices exposed what this is, right? It, it, it's, it it's almost yeah. like intellectually honest in, in some ways. It's like, you're, I mean, to your point, it's it's an inhuman act it's a barbaric thing to deliberately and plan and then ultimately to execute somebody and essentially what you're what i'm hearing from you and what I, or at least what i'm receiving is that the supreme court just kind of and the state of alabama for that matter just said okay we are rec- we are basically saying loud and clear that this is an inhuman thing because we are depriving someone of even one little shred of human dignity and so Let's just call it what it is. It's a, it's inhuman. It's cruel. And, you know, you want to say that's not who we are. That's who we are. Yeah, it is. It's who we are right now. It is. So this is just uh, us processing it. Yeah. Uh, One thing I yeah, wanted to ahead, say, Avi, too, is that to your point about hypocrisy, I, you know, obviously I, I'm a Muslim man, and, and so many of my community members in the faith, in my same faith community took this as a, as a moment to lament about the uh, discrimination against the Muslim community and, and bringing up the Muslim ban and, and other uh, either le- legislative acts or executive orders that have discriminated against Muslim people or that where the Supreme Court has permitted or sanctioned mus- discrimination against Muslims. That's not my my take. That's not my concern here. If Mr. Ray had been a Hindu man or if he had been a Buddhist or if he had been of any faith background or if he was just asking for some other reasonable accommodation in his last breaths just as a human being, if he wanted a particular last meal, or uh, a counselor or, or something. a counselor yeah. or some guidance from uh, or even a family member or something just to make that last moment a little bit more palatable or a little bit more uh, serene. I would want us to want that for him, just like uh, we would want that for someone on their deathbed uh, in a hospital. My take here, I think dovetailing on what you had to say, is it's just about the inhumanity of it all. What you're making me realize is this, how can you make an inhuman process any more human. I, I mean, I, I guess we got to take baby steps and we'll demand those baby steps and, um, and, and try to toggle up as we always talk about, as opposed to toggling down. Make no mistake. I'm not saying that what happened to him was a good thing. Right. 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 You know, I, not. obviously not. I, it's, it's a, it's sick. The manner in which he was killed by the state in with religious discrimination put onto it for no purpose and having, uh, what appears to be obviously illegal, being rubber-stamped by the court that's solely responsible for making sure things are done legally, is gross. Yeah, This is just a gross, terrible thing that happened. It would have been better, it would have been a terrible, gross, it would have been a better, terrible, gross thing if he had not been discriminated against because of his faith in the last moment, yeah. right? We're the ones, ultimately, who are making that decision about what to do with the person who we have 
in our custody. And so I, I don't mean to minimize what happened oh, to I didn't, him at I all. I didn't take that yeah, at all. And, and yeah. it, it's just, yeah, I, I agree with you. We just got it wrong at, at every level. We got it wrong to, we, we recognize the, the, the heinous nature of the of a rape and murder of a 15-year-old girl, but we still got it wrong to condemn the man to death. We get it wrong to deprive him of a basic human dignity and upon his last breaths. We got it wrong constitutionally. I think we got it wrong le- from a legal perspective. I think we did not honor the mandates of our constitution. And again, I, I like I mentioned at the top, we got it wrong because we're choosing efficiency and expedience over humanity. And that's just, it's sickening to think that that's, that's where our um, ultimate interests lie and lead us. Yeah. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Look how I'm living now. Police be tripping now. Yeah, this is America. Guns in my area. I got the strap. I gotta carry them. Yeah, I'ma go into this. Yeah, yeah, this is gorilla. Why don't we do a thing? Uh, we haven't done a thing in a while, so why don't we uh, do a thing? I have a two two part thing. First part is past couple of years the New England Patriots have been in the Super Bowl. Uh, they they beat Atlanta the Wait, Atlanta Falcons. Keep listening. This is criminal justice. Related. Yeah, it's criminal justice related. They beat the Atlanta Falcons at the time back in I think it was twenty seventeen. It was right after Trump had gotten elected. I think the United States was pulling for the Atlanta Falcons as almost like a counterbalance to Trump being elected, and it was a little a, a search for some good news. Because the Patriots and Tom Brady and Robert Kraft were associated with the Donald Trump. Uh, obviously, the Patriots won that Super Bowl. I think people got pretty happy last year when the Patriots lost to the Eagles. And then this year, I think most of the country, besides Patriots fans, were rooting for, besides Patriots and St. Louis residents, were rooting for the Rams to win. And Patriots won again. Much credit to them. But I give them even more credit because I think the day after the Super Bowl, Devin McCourty, Robert Kraft, and I think Robert Kraft's son wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe demanding for juvenile justice reform in the state of Massachusetts. And what was really unique is something that we talked about, I think, in our first year of the podcast was uh, the Raise the Age movement in New York. And here the Patriots were actually demanding a next step of raising the age. And their discussion in the in the op-ed was raise the age of adult court jurisdiction from 18 to 19, recognizing the developments about uh, adolescent brains and uh, about how uh, younger people um, should not be held as responsible or or with similar consequences to adult counterparts or adult peers. And so this is pretty groundbreaking because we've been fighting a fight to just keep kids as kids like 14 15 16 yeah. 17 yeah, yeah. year olds but the patriots took it a step further and said even 18 year olds should be um should remain in the juvenile justice system which is a, f- a frontier that many folks haven't even taken on and so i give the patriots significant uh props for putting their voice out i don't know if you had any thoughts about about that no i, I think it's i think you pointed out the interesting distinction about you know going up on age and yeah, it's something you've talked about previously that I think is really um, I'm hopeful about. So yeah, uh, and then the last thing is it's not really a thing; it's more of a challenge. Um, is uh, we'll talk more about Kamala Harris and her run for the presidency and her background as a DA. But because she's a Hastings alum like me, she is Indian like us, 
Uh, she's a lawyer and she's from the Bay Area. This is an aider and a better invitation slash challenge to Miss Harris to potentially consider coming on the podcast with us. We have a lot of questions that we would love to ask her about criminal justice, about her record as a prosecutor and what she thinks about her time as a prosecutor and what she um, anticipates doing if um, uh, if she were to be elected president. I have my thoughts of, in terms of criticisms of, of her and her background, but I, I want to use this opportunity to try to talk to her about it. And we have a platform and I would love for her to come on with us or someone from her office for that matter. But I would love it for her because I think we, w- we would be able to have a really robust conversation. In the two years we've done this, is this the first Aider and a Better invite on? Yeah. I, I, I invite you to come Right. Speak on things? Yeah, I, mean, I guess so. Theater Nation demands it. You know, yeah. if, uh, we have an electoral college, Theater Nation. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's our We have f- a large f- presence in Iowa. We have a lot of <laughs> listeners in Iowa. Uh, most of the, uh, yeah, most of our listeners are in Iowa. So <laughs> that's a good place to start. We have some listeners in South Carolina and New Hampshire. So the kind of initial battlegrounds, we want you to make an impact. Okay, uh, my thing is just uh, I'd like to express some gratitude. Uh, you know, in this work, we have, we talk about a lot of the challenges that happen. We talk about how the passions that we have for what we get to do and all that stuff. Sometimes we are, just by being there in the criminal system, uh, we have some opportunities to be witnesses and participate in good things happening for people. So I just want to share the story because I thought it was remarkable. I was, you know, at my desk, I received uh, an assignment, a a person needed some assistance. The person was sentenced to 45 years to life. So a 25 year to life sentence uh, consecutive to 20 years of prison. The person was sentenced as a three strike offender. He was in prison and all these reforms were happening, right? Three strikes reform in California a reduction from felony offenses to misdemeanor offenses in California. And these things that were happening were being, he was being denied any benefits to them. Like he just didn't, he didn't qualify for the benefits. Yeah, he didn't quite fit. He didn't quite fit. And even when early parole consideration happened for people who were convicted of serious but not violent felonies, he didn't qualify because the prison said they were not going to give three strike offenders relief. You know, so there were legal battles about that. So he just kept getting stopped. He filed all these motions and he was working on his own habeas and all these occurrences had to happen. Some of his denials had to get appealed and eventually he wound up being represented by this amazing appellate attorney. And the appellate attorney said, those things that are strikes, they're not actually strikes. The things that, you know, three of the four that you got strikes for, they weren't strikes at all. Uh, because of this thing about what a record of conviction is, this thing, this complicated concept, very yeah, in the yeah. weeds type. Uh, yeah, something issue. something that I struggle with sometimes. And and he he looked at it and he said these these aren't strikes, so you never should have gotten what you got. He prevailed. That appellate attorney who looked at the whole case didn't just look at the particular fight he was looking at. Spent time thinking about what his client's position is and what his past was, and and he he got him he got a court to say those weren't strikes so i got to just be present during the resentencing and sajid i was glad that you were there with me uh, just because you were in the building and you you heard i was up to something and you came in and watched and it was just really powerful to meet with his family and to learn that he was going to be able to get released like under the max situation he was getting out and he was not going to have any parole and anything like that 
And so I got to spend a little bit of time with him in the jail, and then we got to go uh, to a hearing where uh, he was, he, yeah, he was ordered released, and it was just because we do this work, right? It, I didn't do the creative argument, I didn't really do anything to help him to get to the point at all, nothing, right? It was just I got to be there and sit with him and you know talk to people who helped him get out of prison, you know, shortly after he was resentenced. So he visited me at the office, and we gave each other a big hug. And I got oh, to see he, his sister. Oh, he did, because uh, when I saw him in court, he was still in custody, so he, he, he Yeah, so uh, later, uh, a couple days later, he came to the office. That's he awesome. met with our, we have a social worker, and I th- really am supportive of public defender's offices having social workers, and she was helping him get his medical benefits set up and all his other aid that he's going to need. And it was really wonderful to see someone get out. At the same time, it made me just really terrified about all the people who don't have the benefit of that amazing appellate attorney, you know, or don't have the benefit of more review of their cases. Kind of when the courts say, hey, there's this issue about records of conviction and what counts as priors and what counts as not strike priors. Like that's a call to action. And I, I really would, I think, as I think institutionally, I think when rules matter about, oh, this thing, it's not actually strike. It's really important that those are deemed retroactive and it's important that people get counsel so that they can get out. Because if you're serving a three-strike sentence on one strike, that's not right. Right. And uh, and I, I'm fearful of who else has that. You know, so there's this great thing that happened, but there's also this dread about you know, who else is there with the same types of problematic yeah. paths. And, but it was, it was just a, a cool thing. And, you know, if you're thinking about doing this work, it's very hard and all that stuff. But... There are these opportunities that you won't find anywhere else. My, uh, we, you and I were sitting in the, or walking back from court, and I was thinking, and I was talking to you, and I was saying that the fact that this man was serving a forty-five to life sentence in the first place was problematic and was unjust. I, I'm glad there was some technical error, essentially, in in his um, in the documents that permitted him another opportunity to have a life on the outside um, but then uh, from a just from a universal you could from this this perspective of of the universe sometimes just beautiful things align uh, you and i were messaging that whole week trading articles and thoughts about uh, what we might be able to talk about on the podcast and the night before this hearing that you talked about you said uh, that uh, you were going to be in court and that a, a, potent, a, a man serving a life sentence might be getting out and I serendipitously had my own court appearance that I had just calendared a couple of days before to get a, something initiated for a client. And so I happened to be in a suit and in court in the same courthouse at the same time. And I could have left the building, but instead I was like, oh, Avi's in the building and uh, I'll go check him out. And I think you, uh, the court hearing was kind of pushed back towards the latter part of the morning. And again, I had to make a decision about whether to stay or not. But I was like, this sounds, this seems like it's a moment. And so I stayed, I sat in the corner of the back of the courtroom and got to watch the man, this man come in and in, in his jail uniform and got to see his, uh, you introduce his family to the court and uh, got to hear you and, and his other counsel ask for this sentence to be reduced to the number essentially that would result or in the gentleman getting out. And the judge so ordered, and the uh, client's family, well, you can hear their tears of joy audibly in the in the courtroom. I cried too. I didn't even know, I didn't know the man, but I 
felt connected to him. I felt connected to you. You know, I always use the word buoy to the spirit. You know, so it was a buoy to my spirit. So I must have done something right to get, the, you know, to earn the karma to be there that, that morning. And uh, so I was just grateful to be present for something like that. And um, You reminded me of something that happened that I, I thought was unusual. There was a woman there for her family member, right, not related to us. And I was sitting there and I heard her crying. Yeah. And it wasn't her family member who was no, getting out. She was out. there on an unrelated case. Yeah. It was just for her husband. It was hope, right? That even if he goes through whoever that was, I have no idea what that person was there for. But even if that person, you know, goes through this system and something good happens, something bad happens, whatever, like there's some possibility that something good might happen someday, you know? So just a stranger. We were waiting for the client to come up and his family was all there. And mind you, this is a person who's served 23 years on a sentence that he never should have served. He was in prison for 23 years, and he, and he should have uh, been in for no more than 17 years in a max situation, or 13 years, or whatever it is. Right. So he was in for a long time, and he suffered. He suffered while he was in prison. He suffered health conditions. He got E. coli. His discs in his back collapse. You know, this is a tragic story uh, of what happened to him. And I don't even know the the half of it, right? I'm just just medical, just in terms of medical, right? Let alone the and scarring on his family and and grandkids grown up, grandkids grown up with day to day, yeah. yeah, without without their grandfather, all this stuff. I was waiting there, and it was taking a long time, like you said, it was going towards the end of the calendar, and the prosecutor said to me, "Have they brought up the body?" And I've heard this term before, yeah, and it was in front of my client's family, and. This is Woke Avi. Woke Avi speaks on things. You know, Woke Avi's a truth teller. And I want to encourage you, if you hear this type of stuff, to speak on it. Yeah. And I am very much conflict averse. I don't want to get into anything with anybody. But I wound up telling the guy, don't do that. And you can call him a person and you can call him by his name. But I said, the system dehumanizes people in all kinds of ways. And I explained to him that in the jail, they call it feedings. There are many ways that our client's humanity is removed from them. Yeah, they, they call them bodies. They call them by their jail color. They, red, a, I got color, a red, I yellow, got a red, I got a double I got a yellow, red. I got a brown, I got a green. You know. I want to encourage people to, when you see those moments of our clients being dehumanized, to uh, not worry about speaking on it. You know, Even if the DA is going to be mean to you or not make some offer that they otherwise would make. If they're going to do that, then they've got larger problems. We have to we have to call out those types of things. We're the only people who will. Well, yeah, I mean, our whole system of incarceration and, and the system of capital punishment that we're, we were talking about earlier, it's all premised on the dehumanization of our fellow human beings, in particular, the dehumanization of our fellow, of people of color. And so what you did with that DA is you breathe a little life back into your client and in doing so you breathe a little life back into all of our respective clients um, especially our black and brown clients who so often are reduced to their rap sheets and so often are reduced to their jail numbers and their charges and their uh, the color of their jail top and and so when you when you said that to that DA you were breathing a little life back in into that client and to all our clients and then you were um, pushing back against the system of mass incarceration because, again, we are able to incarcerate as we do because we 
subconsciously and oftentimes consciously reduce people to subhuman. That's how we can sleep as yeah. we um, lock people up as we do, both in terms of length and in and manner. So appreciate you saying that to that prosecutor, and I appreciate you sharing it with the, with the audience. Everybody, thanks so much for listening to Better and Better. We will talk to you next time.